Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. And I'm Lee Harper, machine learning practitioner with over 10 years doing machine learning. And today we're very lucky to be joined, not from the US, but from India by Asha Gupta. So Asha has been you know, in the data space for this point quite a long time. Currently, she is a customer success manager for Microsoft over in India. And we're looking forward to getting some very interesting perspectives of data culture from cultures outside the North American culture. So welcome, Asha. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Sid, for inviting me. Quite thrilled about the subject and in general about this podcast and about applied curiosity. So tell me, Asha, how did you start out originally in your career in data? So I, I do not really plan for it. It happened. <laughs> I was a young adult back in 2012 um, and with an undergrad in economics. And uh, I was sort of at crossroads thinking about whether I should pivot towards government and research and public sector or whether I should uh, look into multinational corporations in the corporate world. Um, the latter chose me. And then I started off my career with a financial data analytics and information provider, S&P Global Market Intelligence. So they're widely known for their ratings. It's a rating agency, mm -hmm. but at the same time, they also have their flagship product, the Capital IQ platform, which is essentially um, all data in the background. It's a, it's a platform that lets financial participants, such as asset managers, your equity researchers, sales and traders, people access financial data through their platform. And so I was part of that team and that's where the journey started. That's where I kind of got exposed to the data value chain. Um, so right from, you know, collection to processing, to analyze, analyzing it and then to consumption and insights. So yeah, uh, four years into that. And then um, even during my MBA, I think all of the data-driven courses really nice. I found myself gravitating towards them uh, versus the others. So I think I really liked my predictive analytics scores and so on and so forth. So it happened. So you mentioned your MBA. I happen to know that you did the MBA, not India, but in Canada. So what was it that made you take really quite a dramatic step to move halfway across the world to do your MBA in Canada? Yeah, I think at that at that time, I wanted to continue my education and then continue to be exposed to the world and to the opportunities, not just in India, but, you know, across the world. And I was starting to look at universities, especially research-oriented universities, and U of T was, you know, right up there. And then um, when I started to read about the university, the Rotman School, I uh, read about their ex-dean, Roger Martin, who continues to be a very influential thought leader in business management. So... So all of that really helped me decide my school. And, and I thought, uh, you know, U of T would be a good match. And so it proved to be. I had a very immersive uh, learning journey um, while I was at school uh, in Canada. So, yeah, I switched my jobs, my function, my <laughs> industry and my country. Yeah, well, that is a lot. Um, and you mentioned that you were first exposed to AI and pred pred predictive analytics in that program. What was that like? And what was it about the courses that you did there that made that really click with you? 
so that was a new form of thinking because while I was working at SMP Global, it was still a very conventional way of working with data. We were still operating on premise with you know your SQL Server Studio and uh, still mining data from databases to building reports versus to predictive analytics, which was sort of the headway into AI and ML. Um, and this new form of of working with data was very exciting for me. And uh, there was uh, there was an opportunity to work with companies who had partnered with uh, our, our teacher to give us those case studies to work on. And so we had a couple of uh, very interesting case studies and to build our own models through uh, certain tools that were made available. And that was quite cool when I when I read about, you know, just the, 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 the model lifts and the specificity versus sensitivity, the RMF, all the technical words. So that was very exciting for me. And of course, you and I first met when you started working at one of those partner companies. How did that come about? Yeah, so um, Rotman had a program for uh, new startups uh, called the Creative Destruction Lab. It still continues. It's a very immersive program, again, for new businesses to take flight. And Cerebri was there. And um, I think it was a very nice opportunity for me to be part of something bigger than myself in, in new ideas and new technologies and new companies which were giving these ideas form and structure. Uh, so I met I met with the team of Cerebri and uh, in hindsight, I do feel that I've I've, ha I've done some of my best work at Cerebri and I've met some of the best, most culturally diverse and extremely talented people, data scientists mostly, uh, some software engineers as well. But uh, I'm, I'm really glad that those friendships have lasted. And uh, yeah, I think I think it was a very exciting time. So now, of course, you're back in India. Um, after you moved back, what attracted you to working again with a large company, given that you'd kind of had that startup experience at Cerebri, you'd had that MBA experience. What made you want to go back to that larger corporate multinational company? Yeah, so um, my my whole motive of doing an MBA was not to restrict myself to any one geography. That was always there at the back of my mind. I, I kind of wanted to be a global citizen and I wanted to expose myself to as many opportunities across the world as possible. So it was back in March 2020 when the pandemic had just started. Um, Cerebri had scaled back its operations uh, in Canada at the time just because of the macroeconomic headwinds. Um, and uh, interestingly, I kind of have, had a, a working relationship with, with Microsoft. Um, so I started to look around. I'd always wanted to work for a big tech company. I was always interested in technology and innovation. And I am a very analytical person as a personality. So... Uh, I tried to reach out to as many people as I could in, within the industry and uh, Microsoft materialized, but it materialized for me in India, which was good because then at least I could be closer to my family at the time. It was a very uncertain time, uh, yet not sacrifice on my professional development and growth. Uh, so I recall, I think I spoke with you, Lee, just to you know have a piece of advice as I should as I should be joining this uh, big tech giant. Um, but that was but that was quite interesting. It was a pivot. Not a lot of um, Indians who move abroad for their MBA make their move back to India. Um, but I was brave enough to do it, I think. And uh, it has been, again, a great learning experience. And I really love your use there of the term global citizen to describe yourself and your interests and really how you approach things. How do you think that mindset helps you serve the broad range of customers that you serve both now and have served in the past? So in my role as a customer success account manager at Microsoft. We work with customers. We are customers advocates 
within the Microsoft ecosystem. And now I've had, I think, close to eight years of experience in customer success space, um, wherein I've had to interact with a variety of customers. And and these are all people. At the end, it's you're working with people who may be, you know, from different regions across the world and who have moved uh, places, who have moved, again, jobs, industries. And so I think it gives me a lot, lot of perspective and now over a period of time, a lot of confidence in working with these customers and bring that lens that everybody's looking for solutions, business impact, but at the, at the same time, they're also looking for good relationships, for empathy. Um, and for, you know, lasting relationships that can bring them value. So I think that has really helped me in my mindset as I work with customers. Um, it's, it's very important for me to do the listening part right. Is to, you know, when I just like listen to them, what is it that they're most worried about? You know, what keeps them awake at night if they're, you know, one of the executive officers? Or what are the five or ten top challenges they're trying to solve for within their business unit? It could be just, you know, two team members that they're working with. But what are their topmost priorities and challenges? And what can I and what can my team in whatever role and company I'm at do to mitigate to mitigate that, to help on that? So I think I carry that lens now more than before. And it has taken a period of time for me to evolve that mindset. Yeah. So you mentioned that the broader perspective there. And so we have where ideas don't know borders or boundaries, but that they don't always cross those borders and boundaries, even though they don't know them. So, and, and which is surprising given how social media, you know, even professional ones make it so easy to share things. Yet what is, what are some of the things that you're experiencing or seeing and how your, your perspectives and your learnings are, are helping traverse those, you know, ideas across borders? So much is happening, I think, post it's not really post, we're still sort of, you know, in the remote uh, pandemic mm-hmm. era. There's, there's, a, there's a sort of technology percolation or trickle-down effect that's happening. So even if I am um, in, a, in a remote village, I still am able, I'm able to access technology. I am still able to get uh, access to information which is globally available. Um, and, then, and that varies. That varies, you know, if I were in another geography which is more regulated and there's a lot more... Uh, uh, you know, data compliance um, uh, on the population, then you have your own restrictions. But from where I am, I've seen a lot of technology uh, percolate down to the most remotest areas of the world. And that is where I see those boundaries dissolve. Mm. But on the other side, we are also in a very uncertain time where there's um, geographical boundaries, which are, you know, even more tightened than before. Mm-hmm. Talk about Europe, talk about, uh, you know, your Asia. So all these geographies, is where some of those ideas and some of that data is, is unable to get through um, and be part of that global brain, if you can call, call it that. So you've got the global brain, but also then I'm sure there are also differences in how people perceive data and data culture between the North American market and India and other parts of Asia where you are. What differences have you noticed between how people deal with data and data culture between the different countries you've worked in? If I, so my customers are, uh, some of them are actually global companies. So they may be headquartered in, uh, in the West or uh, other countries, but they have local operations in India. Uh, essentially, we work with the people. So if I am working with a customer, I'm working with a team that's based in India, but that's got a culture or that eats, you know, strategy, uh, 
percolating down from their headquarters, right? Now, so for example, um, if if I were to reflect on a very recent experience, uh, let's talk about uh, how technology is making operations uh, better. There's a lot of cost savings, and there's also a lot of resource limitations. In North America, for example, you have fewer people who can who can do your admin jobs, for example, your database admin jobs. Uh, in India, you may still be able to find uh, find people who can do that job. So there's less of a resource constraint there. So they're more readily available. But at the same time, with all these all these technologies, what is happening is also a shift in uh, in in how it's it's viewed within an organization. So if if now technology is able to do the database administration work and you know, all of that gets automated, that's great. You've got the operational efficiency from technology, which is you know, absolutely pivotal towards any growth. But at the same time, it poses a big risk on the jobs of a lot of people, which may be perceived very differently in, in different organizations. Uh, it's something that uh, even leadership or management may try to prevent. So so different uh, different experiences come in your way as you work with different teams, especially about especially when there's this there's technology coming into business processes. Um, some of these outcomes are not very obvious right from the beginning. We just assume that, you know, there's great technology, it's, it's all great, and it's going to give us uh, great insights, and it's going to give us great uh, great profits, but that's not always the case. There's uh, there's other hidden costs that, that you get to know as you implement that technology. So that's one of the things that I've noticed in, in customers uh, over over in India versus in North America. The other thing is also that uh, Indian customers they tend to uh, they tend to have a mentality of say doing more with less. So if if they have fewer resources, they try to still make things work um, rather than really advocate for themselves and call out that hey we need more funding or we need more support or we need more resources to get a particular project done. They will try their very best till they've exhausted the options they have with them uh, versus uh, maybe maybe some of the other customers who have. Uh, who have that power of attorney to ask for more. Uh, in terms of work, in terms of projects which involve a lot of uh, data processing, for instance, there's again a mindset of, of being very, very data-driven and being very analytical. Um, and sometimes that intuitive thinking is missing. But there are other pockets where you'd find a lot of design thinking and intuitive thinking now coming in, especially, for example, if you work, on the, if you work with people who are in the marketing or in the, in the sales and marketing space. Um, who who are doing a lot of customer outreach work. So there you will see these trends uh, shifting the culture. What have you seen about how, if you've got, say, a team that maybe is split between some folks in the US or somewhere else in Europe and some folks in India, and hey, some folks, say, Nepal, Japan, Australia, you know, these big single teams are genuinely globally distributed. What have you observed about how those teams kind of function, how their culture looks, and how they work together efficiently and effectively, or not, as the case may be? Yeah. So most of the projects that that businesses work on will have people spread across different geographies, time zones. They would also be varying by their job functions. So your IT team operates out of India, but your uh, software engineering team sits out of the US or your you know data science and your analyst teams works out of Australia, whatever that 
uh, bifurcation is that's there's always that segmentation but i think increasingly everybody in the business has sort of adapted because once we all switched to remote work it was the need of the hour to collaborate more intentionally we were not going to offices we were not meeting people face to face um so because of remote work almost all of the teams have understood that if they really have to truly collaborate they have to rely on digital means and they have to do it more intentionally and more purposefully um so i've seen i've seen those trends emerge that they are working a lot more smarter um yes there are there are teams that still work in silos and that that very much shows up in the projects um especially projects that are heavily data dependent uh, you need a comprehensive cohesive team to come together and if that doesn't happen your outcomes suffer and i think with remote work it's made lives easier they're still able to you know take calls and and meet with their teammate who's operating in a different time zone and still stay connected and still exchange and bounce ideas off of each other and still continue to collaborate and i think that trend is going to stay that trend is going to bond teams together for the more and that's 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 good because now we have you know a lot of tools to help us do that a lot of productivity apps a lot of digital means to connect us and be able to do the work that we want to do as if we were in a room so all of those tools and apps are now coming in percolating again into our cultures so that's going to ease uh, the collaboration we'd like to see that wasn't that was sort of there but now is really coming into effect i'm curious i was talking to another friend of mine that um has spent time overseas you know in remote development centers is part of like us organizations and so one of the things we were chatting about is that this covid has potentially leveled the f- i wouldn't say fully leveled the field but made it a little more level because you know from from her perspective it was well the us offices had a lot on their internal collaboration and everybody else felt periphery and then now when everybody's working from home it made it a little balanced it out a little bit more that now almost everybody had to collaborate the same way is that something else that the you know that does that perspective um that she shared ring true for you oh yeah absolutely right it's all about that org design i mean the first scenario that you described uh, drew a picture of a hub and spoke model in my mind mm-hmm. and our versus this as you clearly said right it's a level playing field almost everybody across the world has the same level of access to the same level of opportunities um and there's less there's less bias so so that's great well, I, i did a lot of work for dell at a prior company and again people from literally all over the world you know I was collaborating with people from from egypt people from india people from ireland as well as people in the us and it got to the point where i actually had to ask people hey what's your time zone because it really wasn't obvious right you know there that those decisions weren't there so strongly within that organization and so it wasn't clear that this was the egyptian team and that you might have guessed from their names but again you can't really assume people could be anywhere in the world nowadays so that was definitely an experience for me to you know see that collaboration in action at that kind of organization so i know that the one of the flip sides of the openness with data which is a good thing i think you know sid and i are both big advocates of being open with data um at least internally is you can get a real tension between people like myself who want to get all the data and be creative with it it departments that want to lock it down make it as secure as possible you know that balance between security and governance and you know innovation and productivity 
how have you seen that tension manifesting and also being resolved in interesting or you know innovative ways absolutely i think uh, i'm going to bring in our our past experience with bank of canada right i think that was a perfect example <laughs> where a where a central bank partnered with uh, a startup which by the way that y- um, you and i worked on that project together um you know i was the project yeah. lead and you were and you were, and, and yes. you were the pm so for the listeners yes, that are wondering yes. where that comment comes from yes so this was back when we were working for cerebri and uh, we were uh, doing a project for bank of canada and uh, it was a, a great learning experience uh, for this scenario that you just described right we wanted to bring in innovation and get that change in the culture of the bank work with their economists and uh, the bankers um and our team of data scientists to understand what all data sets could we look at uh to potentially you know make our forecasts of the gdp better and how so there was that tension of how do we get access to the data in a, in 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 a very secure manner so obviously the it teams were involved in making sure all of the the external users to the bank had proper access and proper clearance um and then what type of data will we get access to right uh, you're working with the government they're sitting on some very confidential data sets and they're layered by security and protection so you learn about all those layers of protection and security and at the same time you want to bring in productivity and innovation you want to make that data useful you want to drive insights from the data that hasn't been touched or is you know very rarely been looked looked at um so that was a very interesting problem statement how we were able to maneuver is is obviously took time it took a lot of collaboration it took a lot of building trust with the customer uh, that hey we're here to help and you know we will we will employ all the right means to do all the things right in order to pilot this project and use the data in the most secure manner possible uh, it took time but it was the people who got us to do that right it was their it teams it was our it teams it was uh, their bankers and our data scientists and rpms and and their project managers who came together and really sat on the problem and uh, we maneuvered it and what what i've liked about this conversation so far is many things about it but one thing is your constant reference to to people right people over just the tech people over just the organization people over just you know some governance policy and also you just mentioned trust as well and in your role i'm sure you know you want your customers to trust you really as quickly as you can you want to you know get that rapport established how do you go about establishing trust you know quickly uh with new customers or customers that you know might be a slightly difficult how do you think about that i think i've had to think more about that problem as i joined microsoft because everybody knows that microsoft is a is a product company it's a technology company but at the same time it's also a sales company right we also have to sell we also have to have our customers adopt our technology implement it use it um and so customers may uh, approach approach me or you know other other roles which are more on the account side uh, as are they trying to sell me something um are they here for my money right yeah. but that's not really the case uh, you kind of have to work with your customers make them understand that you know hey we we are sitting on a pool of great technology and you're sitting on a on a great set of problem statements to which we could match our technology to so it's it's all about that value conversation um how are we incent- incentivized in my role so if i were in a in a solution specialist or in a seller role then i know how my incentives are versus in a customer success account manager role where uh, where i i have to i have to incentivize my customer basically so i have to advocate for my customer and what they are needing right now 
and uh, drive that value conversation. If there is a business problem that they are facing and Microsoft has the means to be able to address it, it is then my duty to present to them all the options with full transparency as to what something would cost versus not. As to what what they're not just their cost commitment and investment, but just in general, their, their time commitment as well. Um, all of our customers, they're, they're quite busy. They, they run you know their day jobs and they have bigger projects coming their way. Um, every quarter, and they get approached by a lot of uh, a lot of companies, right? It's not just Microsoft. It's you know, it's their partner, it's their ISV, it's it's uh, some other RFP that they're working on. So you really have to drive uh, drive that value conversation with impact. That what is it uh, in for you, and uh, how in a, in a very transparent and timely partnership basis could we deliver that? And once you do that, once you present your options, um, then I think customers open up. Um, they understand that you know it's it's something that's that's going to be mutually valuable and then that discussion becomes a lot more integrative in nature yeah building trust is is probably the hardest part of our jobs really i mean you mentioned the trust piece with the bank of canada and that hits i think really to the heart of a lot of challenges with our data projects and our data initiatives, because people know that, that you know, the most valuable thing that a company has, al- almost the most valuable thing, is its data. Yeah. And so yes. you know, we're asking to to openly use and access all of that. Um, have you had scenarios where you had to be a little creative, or I, I guess maybe ask a question that. What's been the most interesting lesson in building trust that you've had in your time? Um, I think it's not an interesting lesson. It's a lesson in patience. Yeah. So you have to give yeah. give your customers time. It's like, um, so I recall something that uh, Rick Bologna had told me, Lee, uh, if you recall Rick from our time at Cerebri, right? He told me that, 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 your, that your job, Arshia, is one who sees... A tree, a tree grow, which is a lot of patience. So you have to sit through your relationships, sit through the day-to-day. You know that you're thinking about your customer day in and day out. You're thinking about their problems. You're thinking about the solutions that could potentially come and mitigate those uh, those problems and avoid risk and kind of uh, give them value. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a very, it all takes time. So you have to be very patient. And then you just have to trust the process that the results will follow something will work out and that the road might be bumpy, but eventually it's all for the better. So you kind of uh, build trust uh, by giving time to your customers, giving time to, uh, to thinking about them in a way that could benefit them. If you don't put in the time and, and investment, then I don't think you can really nurture any relationship for that matter, forget customers. And you might win a short-term deal, but that's not going to result in that longer term. Yes. <laughs> Just yeah, not just the money, but the human side of it, right? You know, we want to be happy in our jobs. And if you've got happy customers who like you, that makes our jobs a lot more pleasurable as well. But, yes. So again, thinking about the long term, kind of the longer game, what do you predict for our field, for data, data science, and what your customers might want over the course of the next five years? Now is a very uncertain, but also very interesting time. I'm conflicted in my mind about all the all the new announcements that you know the data science and tech companies are making in the world. 
against some recessionary headwinds. So I keep thinking, right, uh, AI from when I when I really last immersively worked in the field with 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 on hands data scientists versus now where uh, I don't get to work with uh, with data scientists that closely, but I'm working with a team wherein you know there would be a team of um, analysts or uh, or or uh, your your data scientists or cloud solution architects. So there's so much happening in the world of productivity. There's 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 an evolution of how we work with data and how we have worked with data in the past. Um, just touching upon how Microsoft's recent announcements around ChatGPT, around generative AI, around all the productivity that will get embedded into our apps through, through Copilot and, and such announcements. They're very exciting. They're very optimistic. Yes, there are uh, concerns from various groups that, you know, how what will this do to our thinking as humans? Uh, will we cease thinking altogether? But I think if we view it in a more of a positive light, think about all the time that it's giving back to us to think more uh, about uh, about how we used to really. I don't know if you if you've done this, but I used to really like working with Excel and trying to use as many Excel formulas as possible, uh, and still realizing that I haven't even touched like ten percent of Excel. So with with all these new announcements, using all the ML models uh, coming in. I wonder like what it's going to do to our capabilities, right? It'll give us, it'll free time for us to be able to get more creative, to be able to build uh, assists for ourselves. So, you know, I may be working on my own app, uh, my own conversational uh, expert assist who can help me get through the day. It could be, you know, more more creative thinking, more intuitive thinking, uh, besides just uh, some of the mundane tasks, which we, which we, which we feel are, table stakes for for our generation we we know that we've learned it we know how to kind of work with with uh, with a certain level of data with certain level of processes we we know that already there's no further learning in that but with with new announcements um, there's definitely a lot more room in productivity for us as, as people and for the problems that we are solving obviously i i, I love that um that insight I, I couldn't cheer more for the elimination of the mundane in our in in our lives, but it's we also kind of stand at what you might call like a dangerous opportunity, right? Like the elimination of the mundane could open up lots of room for creativity if we find ways to, as a society and as organizations, value the creativity versus fill it, that new space up with, quote unquote, more productivity. Have you seen any customers or, or have thoughts on, on that? All right. It's, uh, I was going to make a joke earlier. Uh, Lee, isn't, um, isn't three uh, make a trend? You are the third economist. So we had Andrew, myself, and you, and all of us ended up in data. So from an economics standpoint, what might you see or think on how we could value that creativity once we've automated the mundane. I think it's going to it's going to be a lot more immersive for us in, in the way we lead our lives, right? It's not just about uh, what we do on our computer and and how and how we run our projects. That's that's not going to be it. It's it's about going to be how we lead our lifestyles. You know, we we work with data, but then uh, we really work on data throughout our our day. It's just it's it's not collected or it's not captured. I think with with all this new data collection and, and new modeling uh, methods coming into the market, 
we'll get to see which we weren't seeing before, whether that was, you know, our sleep patterns to, you know, uh, just just how much time we, we spend in the bathroom versus something else. So all of this data is going to guide us further um, in, in, in terms of freeing up more space, hopefully, in terms of better decision making. So we know that where is it that we were going wrong and where is it that we could make an improvement, right? What you can't measure, you can't improve. Um, so I think there will be a lot of assist and there will be a lot of creative thinking, but at the same time, we'll get access to a lot of data that what, what you don't know, what you don't know, right? So, so you'll get a lot of access to the data that wasn't there before, but is there before, and now you have the opportunity to work on it, make your lives better and not just your jobs. It's kind of like with the, with the ATM, when that was released, people thought it would you know, get rid of a whole bunch of banking jobs and it did, but it also put a whole bunch of new jobs that replace those jobs. Yeah. Um, honestly, I believe more interesting jobs from the point of view of the, uh, te- the tellers themselves. Well, Ash, it's been a great conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, certainly. I hope some of my insights were useful and, and valuable to our, uh, our hearers. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture change makers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.